From the campus of Stanford University and on location, this is the Entrepreneur's Radio Show and Podcast featuring in-depth one-on-one interviews with purpose-driven entrepreneurs and high-performance game changers committed to extraordinary ideas, preeminence, and multi-generational success. Our radio show and podcast illuminates the struggles, breakthroughs, and exceptional outcomes these game changers bring to industries, organizations, and lives. Hosted by Tom Dioro, principal of Podfather Media. Thank you, Tatum. For our guest today, let's welcome Fabrice Grinda. Fabrice is among the world's leading internet entrepreneurs and investor and has over 150 exits on now over 600 angel investments. He served as a CEO for three multinational companies and has a track record as early investor in Alibaba, Flexport, Zuma Pizza, Delivery Hero, Betterment, and Bright Rule. Fabrice is currently running a startup studio and venture fund, FJ Labs, which he co-founded with business partner Jose Marin. Fabrice was named the number one angel investor in the world by Forbes. Loves this. For more, uh, and I love it too. For more information, feel free to visit FabriceGrinda.com. Again, FabriceGrinda.com. Hello, Fabrice. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Show. Thank you so much for being here. We're really honored and uh, really excited too. Thank you for having me. Fabrice, we'll start off with the, you know, a quote, a mantra that you find of value to you. Can you, can you share that? Yeah, for some reason, with- yes, for, 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 for some reason, uh, the following quote has always resonated with me, which is, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness is genius, power, and magic in it. And it's a quote attributed to Goethe. And, and to me, it's, uh, there, there's, there's magic in action. Right, like the it, it's kind of like the genius in startups is in the execution, not the idea, even though the idea does fundamentally matter. And and as you're doing things, you're creating momentum. You're you're delivering on on this vision, and and you're and, and you're creating something out of nothing. And I think that's a form of creativity and artistry that's completely magical. Yeah, that creating something out of nothing. There's another uh, a quote. Uh, I'd love to hear your take on this. It's just my personal preferences is a. Uh, I have a, a greater value of discovery, more so than creativity. But I'd love to hear your take in that. That uh, you know, is it something that's one sees in their eye or their mind's eye, I guess, before they actually un- it unfurls for them. So it depends on the people, right? So Tesla was actually famous for for actually seeing in his mind's eye the the drawings that he would then that he would then uh, actually create. This is not the case for all. Like, so I suffer from a condition called aphantasia, where I don't have a mind's eye. So actually, okay. I cannot visualize, and yet I can. I have a very powerful imagination. It just doesn't take a visual form per se. And and you're right. There's creativity, curiosity. To me, they're all interrelated. Like like what drove me as a kid was really curiosity. Is like learning about how the world works, learning about what you can do to make a difference, and, and it's that curiosity that ultimately led to creativity. Yeah, you know, I just get the, such a strong sense. Fabrice, that obviously you're very, very successful at what it is that you do with companies that this is, even if you, if you weren't, you would just keep going. It just like drives you like an, at, a, at, a, at a heart and gut level. Am I incorrect or reaching? You know, in a way, I'm very lucky because what 
turned out to be a hobby, which was like tech and tech entrepreneurship in the 1980s, where it felt like it might be a small country, a, sw- a small business, turned out to be this gazillion dollar industry that had the potential to change the world. And so because my underlying hobby and passion ended up ended up being so successful, I was extremely driven. I mean, obviously, I could have retired like 15 or 20 years ago, but I love what I do. And, and I think it's kind of conversation we're having part of the show starting, which is when I was younger and I thought, how do I impact the world positively? I was really thinking of going to politics. And my current perspective is that, that policy is no longer effective. You can no longer affect social change through policy. And But if you harness the deflationary power of technology, you can actually address all of the fundamental ills of society today, which are both climate change and, and frankly, all the social disparity that we have. I mean, even though we've seen dramatic improvement in the last 200 years, I mean, we now have like 90% of people came out of extreme poverty. We had literacy rate that was 12% in 1820. It's now like 90%. We, we have a quality of life. We include when you include like electricity, water, cell phones, planes that was in, in, in unimaginable 200 years ago to like the kings of and emperors of yesteryear, and yet we still have so many fundamental issues. Right, inequality remains really, really large. Both gender inequality. So white men make a lot more than white women and white men make a lot more than black men. So we also have racial inequality. And that's even when you adjust for for educational achievement and when you adjust for for the type of company they work in. We have social mobility that declined. In 1940, 90% of people made more money than their parents. Today, it's down to 50% and, and, and declining. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, the it used to be if you worked hard, even if you went to a bad school, you could make it. But today, 90% of the new jobs that were created or created for college-educated workers, even though that's only 26% of people. The top cities in the world are creating all of the jobs and all of the growth, and yet we've limited construction. If you look at San Francisco, where... 80% of it is zoned against apartments that as demand has increased, prices have, have gone through the roof. So you can't move to the new cities. They're too expensive. Yet that's where the jobs are. And even if you could move, you don't have the right educational skill set in light of the changes in the economy. But the good news is you know, technology can address a lot of these things. We, in a way, in the marketplaces that are near and dear my heart, you know, the way that you're optimizing for like picking the people that work for you right now is the people that do the job best. It's like gender and and, and race blind. You're you're seeing because it's deflationary, it, most things become cheaper, and by virtue of becoming cheaper, it increases equality of of opportunity and equality of outcomes. So, you know, I'm I'm, I'm profoundly optimistic. Yeah. Now, if you go back to that, the policy can no longer um, affect change. Were, was there a galvanizing moment or moments where you where you really kind of reached that position? It, it's really an observation of the last 20, 30 years. It looks like our fundamental institutions are fraying and they're no longer... And, and look, the US, and, and, but it was created to require consensus. I mean, the fact that the founding fathers, in a way, were intelligent. They wanted everyone to to agree before you could change the structure uh, of its democracy effectively. And it has pros and cons. And the pros is as long as the underlying structure is 
work well, it, it means that you you move slowly and you only do things when they make sense to to the whole. The problem is once you started seeing the fraying of democracy where you have partisanship to the level that it is, and it's not just true in the US, it's frankly true in the West as a whole. And I think because the current elites haven't addressed these social issues and haven't addressed climate change, you're seeing the rise of populism and populists because they offer simple answers and people are angry and there's an outlet for their anger. But obviously these are false prophets and these are false solutions. And that's why I think it's up to us, technologists, entrepreneurs, and venture capitalists to actually pick up the mantle. And it's our obligation to to use the te- technology to address these issues. And, and I, I think both on the climate side and on the s- social justice side, I, there are great strides that, that will be made and are being made, frankly, by entrepreneurs on both. I'm more than happy to give examples on how these things are, are unfolding. You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Radio Show and Podcast on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. We're talking today with Fabrice Grinda, ranked number one angel investor in the world by Forbes and co-founder of venture fund VJ Labs. For more information, feel free to visit FabriceGrinda.com. Again, FabriceGrinda.com. Fabrice, uh, before we uh, talk about you know some examples here, if we can go back to that magic in action. I like when you said that. The magic is in the action. Can you share with us, you know, prolific 600 companies that you've worked with even more. What is it about that magic in action that means so much to you? You know, a, a lot of people have ideas and, 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 and yet very few people act on these ideas. And, and so if you ask me, if someone came to me and said, hey, Fabrice, I have the best idea ever, but I, you know, I don't know the right guy to execute it. How much are you willing to give me of the company for the idea, and then you go and do the work? And I think at best, the answer is 1%. And it's really the execution and the action that that is where the value is. Because through that execution, through that action, you're gonna, going to learn so much more. You're going to refine your thesis. You're going you're gonna to realize what works and what doesn't work. The disruptive product change occasionally comes from like this genius insight, but often comes from basically 1% improvements done a thousand times over. You keep throwing spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks. And the thing is, because of the modern tools of building startups, which is multivariate testing where everything goes through different funnels and you keep optimizing each each step of the way, if, if you do these 1% improvements a thousand times component over, it's, it's disruptive outcomes. It's like 10x better, 100x better than what you started with. And it's really, really amazing. Now, how about the companies that you work with? How varying, I'm sure they, they, they are diverse, but how much can you take lessons learned and not learned into the next organization or company? In a way, I'm, I, I'm both specific and diverse, right? I invest in every geography, in every industry, essentially at every stage. But the specificity is I focus on one type of business model, which are marketplaces. And, and so marketplaces are intermediaries between buyers and sellers, and there are Definite lessons learned and, and 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 definite best practices in terms of you know typically when you build a marketplace you should start with the supply because most marketplaces are demand constrained and the supply side is financially motivated beyond the marketplace. In order to determine how much you should charge, you need to test elasticity of demand, elasticity of supply. You take your rake on the more inelastic part of the, of the, of the curve, whether it's the demand curve or the supply curve. You definitely want fragmentation on both sides. Uh, having increased density is, is super effective and really matching supply and demand effectively such that at least 
25%, you represent e- either if you're selling an item, 25% of the items sell, or if you're selling something, a service, maybe you represent 25% of the revenues of that supply side to create delightful experiences for both sides. You know, all these are like key lessons that I think are applicable across them. And so because of that specificity, we're really in a position to be helpful to marketplace founders. What characteristics, if you're at liberty to share, do you find is a common thread with the founders, if there is one or two? So every venture capitalist in the world will tell you, I invest in amazing teams. I invest in amazing founders. The thing is, it's a very generic answer. What is an amazing founder? And for me, an amazing founder is one that has two traits and these two have to be overlapping. And it's, it's someone who's an extraordinary storyteller. Because if you're an amazing storyteller, you're going to be able to raise money at a higher valuation and attract more capital. You're going to be able to get more PR. You're going to be able to get better business deals. You're going to attract better talents. But it's actually an insufficient condition. Because if you're not at the same time analytical and numbers driven, you're not going to build a profitable and successful business. Maybe a very large business, but probably not one that ultimately makes money. Uh, on the flip side, if you're purely analytical and numbers-driven, you're probably not going to have the visionary charisma to to to, to attract a, a, enough capital and, and people and partners to to get them to get the, the job done. And so, you really need that that rare Venn diagram intersection of people that are both fantastic storytellers and visionaries and 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 numbers-driven and analytical. And I take as table stakes kind of everything else. Like I assume you're you're gritty and, and hardworking and, and, and you have what it takes to, to see it through good times and bad times. But frankly, that's table stakes. Like by the virtue of being of getting to where you are in life, typically you've demonstrated it. Go back again to that powerful imagination. Is that something that you obviously you've acknowledged in yourself, but is, is it also something that you look for in other people? And can it be instilled in, in a person? So where does curiosity and imagination come from, it, it, it's unclear, right? If I look back at, at, at my childhood, it was always there. And I do see two types or multiple types of, from a personality perspective of entrepreneurs. So there are the monomaniacal people that have one problem that they were, they're here to solve. And, and it's usually a very personal problem. Many of the best, you, you always want entrepreneur idea fit. Right, that the entrepreneur running is trying to solve a problem that somehow personally affected them, either in their in their life, in their personal life, in their professional life, and whatever they face. And so, and and if if people that's all they do and that's all they think about, frankly, that's totally fine. And then there's others that are more creative and more curious and 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 have this gestalt because they're drawing analogies between different topics and and it leads to successful outcomes but, but both are true i mean if you think of like mark zuckerberg's the early in the early days the only thing that interested him was a social, was a social graph uh, he was not a polymath he was super narrow and social and and that served him very well and then later as he became the company became larger and he became more successful and more of a public figure in a way he had to to add to to to, to his character uh, but it, it it started the other way right it started being very narrow so i'm not sure it's a requirement frankly even intelligence i'm not sure is 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 a requirement like uh, some of the very best founders it's more about like grit tenacity willing willingness to eat glass to sacrifice all of the line and to be so mission driven that that and, and, and frankly enough humility to realize that you don't know the answer 
the and it's fundamentally different to be in a world where there is no you don't know the answer ex ante. There's no correct answer, and therefore you're throwing a lot of spaghetti in the wall to see what sticks. Which by by default, regardless of how smart you are, requires a level of humility that whatever your original idea was may be very flawed and wrong. And by the way, it's true both as an investor and an entrepreneur. Most of the companies we invest in fail. Most of the companies we build as entrepreneurs fail. And 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 yet that's okay. Uh, and it's very different from the way the rest of the world works, where somehow failure is is no longer acceptable. And that's true, and, and that's true in politics. It's true in, in large enterprise. It's true in bureaucracies. Like like you, you're not allowed to fail. And I think that leads to a lot of very bad incentives and 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 overall behavior. And that's why startups are so profoundly disruptive and so profoundly powerful in a way in their ability to change society. FJ Labs, what was your inspiration for uh, FJ Labs? And, and uh, can you share with us, uh, if you're at liberty to do so, some of your most recent experiences? Yeah, I, I, you know, I never set out to be a venture capitalist. I was always an entrepreneur. So I started uh, building my first large venture-backed startup in, when I was 23 back in 1998. And by virtue of being a successful consumer internet CEO, a lot of other entrepreneurs started asking for money and advice. At first, I didn't have money, so I gave advice. And little by little, as I became more successful, I started investing. And and over the years, the like, especially the last company that I was running that was really large, it has 5,000 employees, it's 350 million unique visitors a month. I was so visible that I decided, okay, I'm, I'm more than happy. To, and, and frankly, I loved helping other entrepreneurs. I loved seeing both helping them I write. And also, I, I thought I learned a lot through the process. And it made me a better entrepreneur to get to have my pulse on the, on, on the, thing, on, on the market and to get a sense of like what are the best and most interesting approaches and meeting the most interesting people. And there's a saying that you know who you are is really reflected by the people you surround yourself by, the people you meet and, and talk to. And so you try to surround yourself by amazingly smart, passionate people all the time, and and you become a a, a better person as a result. Not necessarily better in the in from a moral compass perspective, but definitely more intelligent uh, about how things are going. And, and so by 2013, when I sold and left my last company, I'd already made over 100 investments. And I realized, you know what? I love making investments. I love building companies. Let's keep doing that. Try to raise a fund at that time. And actually kind of failed because uh, the approach I have where, you know, I, 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 at that time, I would I would meet an entrepreneur in a, for one hour. And on that one hour meeting, I would tell them if I invest or not and why. And so in a way, you know, given the approach I had, it was like I invested every geography to every stage in, in, in every industry, and I do no due diligence, essentially, or extremely limited due diligence, given that I'm deciding one hour. That's something that's <laughs> scared traditional institutional investors shitless, and they're like, like, there's no way they're never going to give me money to manage, despite the fact that I've made money and I've ran half the, the exits I, I've had, and so far, our, our, our IRR has been, realized IRR has been 62% a year, and that's over like 22 years, which puts us in like, whatever, the top 0.1% of all VCs ever. And, and so I'm like, you know what? It's okay. My partner and I could just invest our own money. And then because it started resonating with people, especially in marketplaces, we started being approached by strategic investors in marketplaces or owners of, of marketplace assets around the world. They were like, hey, we would like 
a looking glass into the future. We want to know what's going on in the U.S. We want to either bring these trends to our markets or defend against them. Uh, and so we'd like to invest with you. And that's how FJ Labs ended up being created in 2016. So not that long ago with external money for the first time. And yeah, little by little has, has been growing. And now we, I guess we've deployed 260 million to date, but half of that is kind of our own capital. So, you know, very different from most venture capitals, capitalists. And the last fund, which closed not that long ago, is about 175 million our fund. Mostly writing 500k checks at seed and pre-seed and Series A. What um, we've been focusing on these days, I mean, we're thesis driven, as I told you. So we, we're not leading, we're not pricing, and we're mostly focusing on marketplaces. And there are three types of marketplaces we love these days. They're verticals of these multi-category horizontal sites. So we're verticalizing food startups. So we're like a Chabas, which is a a Chinese food delivery startup. We're verticalizing. <clears throat> Upwork, we're vertical, so the remote work sites with like sites that have a much better experience in one specific vertical. We're verticalizing Craigslist, we're verticalizing eBay, we're verticalizing Thumbtack in the home services category. That's one entire bucket. Second big bucket is marketplaces where the user experience is improved because the marketplace is picking your supplier. So if you think of Uber, you don't pick your driver. You just say you want to go from point A to point B. And so my assertion is you can do that for every category. If you want a plumber, if you want to redo your kitchen, if you want to hire a programmer, if you want to hire a photographer, none of this, you need to be picking the supply on your end. So the marketplace is better positioned to do it for you. It improves the user experience dramatically. So marketplace pick models. And the third one is B2B marketplaces. We've had this revolution in the consumer sector of user experiences from Instacart, Airbnb, to Uber, to, to Amazon. And yet, in the B2B world, all transactions remain Rolodex-driven, Excel, email, and, and there's not been transparency. But has the corporate leaders or becoming that are coming up and coming or becoming younger, there are millennials or people in the 30s and 40s, they they grew up with like ex- having these amazing BDC currencies. So they expect to see the same thing in B2B. So now we're investors in like petrochemicals marketplaces and marketplaces for fish between the fishermen and, and, and the restaurants and many, many other such types of marketplaces. Excellent. This is the Entrepreneur's Radio Show and Podcast on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1. FM, we're going to uh, provide an acknowledgement for the University of the People, or UO People. University of the People is an educational revolution. They're the first nonprofit, tuition free, American accredited online university dedicated to opening access to higher education globally. UO People is designed to help qualified high school graduates overcome financial, geographical, political, and personal constraints, keeping them from collegiate studies. For more information, you can find them at uopeople.edu. Again, uopeople.edu. Thank you very much for that uh, suggestion, Fabrice. I appreciate it, and uh, hopefully folks uh, go to that site. Fabrice, also talk, I want to ask you about fear as a factor. Do you, how much do you feel or have you experienced or if you can even quantify fear from either an entrepreneur or prospective entrepreneur or you, even you as an investor in actually going ahead and you know proceeding with your belief that there, it's going to reach an outcome to what you envision? 
I think I'm built differently from most because I'm not sure fear is is an emotion that I feel very often. It maybe it, it explains why I'm so addicted to like you know kite surfing, ice climbing, <laughs> heli skiing, and and, and 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 every you know survival training in the jungle and, and all these things. And I I, I think I, I thought long and hard about why I don't fear, and I think people or too risk averse at large. We the reality is there is very little to fear. And we we are so extraordinarily privileged and and we we should be so grateful for the fact that we're born in the west, right? Like I was born in France, but like in the US same thing. We for most of us we come from middle class families. We we have we have a quality of life that is not only the, the the best in the history of humanity that would be the that that would make kings of yesteryear blush and would be the envy of, of the emperors of yesteryear, but we also have a quality of life that's better than most in, in 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 the rest of the world today. And 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 frankly, to the extent that we are in a position to be entrepreneurs, and usually it means we've had a pretty good education. We probably had a pretty good job in the past. And so, what really is there to fear? And, and 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 I remember when I was twenty three, you know, I, I when I graduated from Princeton, I was top of my class, I guess in ninety six. I I went to work for McKinsey for two years because I thought it was like business school, except they pay you. And I got promoted associate. I was making like hundreds of thousands a year at like the age of twenty one. And my parents were like, "Are you insane? Like you're leaving that behind. You're you're gonna, you're building this internet thing. It's gonna be tiny. You're gonna go bankrupt. It's gonna it's gonna crush you because you've never failed in your life." And I was like, you know. Maybe all that will happen, but like, what is, what's the risks? What's the downside? I go back to McKinsey. Is that the worst that could really happen? You know, like I could live on your couch for a while. It's it, like, I'm not going to be homeless. Like I, I, if you have faith in your skills and your, and your ability, I think it's fine. Like, like I look, I, the reality is I did go bankrupt. Ultimately, I did li- have to live in New York, such like $2 a day for two years. And I borrowed a hundred thousand of my credit cards. I missed payroll 27 times. I, you know, like I, I slept on the couch at the office. I couldn't afford any, I couldn't even afford a coffee, but I was doing what I loved. And, 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 and at the same time, again, like it, even if it had really had happened and it was the end of, it was the end of the line. I could have gotten a job. Like <laughs> it's fine. Okay, so I'm not the youngest partner in the history to me at McKinsey. What <laughs> doesn't it doesn't matter. Life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. Well, boy, you just summed up a tremendous amount of uh, the one of the best, if not the best, description of a fear or a factor I've, I've ever heard. So you you've been in in that situation. So uh, I get it, man. I really appreciate that too. Other than the curiosity, can you think of a, a galvanizing moment or moments in your life, especially when you were uh, where you you were younger, that kind of puts you where you are now? If I don't even know if you can recall a moment or a place or a time, but something that may have just really resonated, kind of in uh, it's a little ethereal, but in your soul that like you know what this is kind of how I'm built. This is kind of what I want to do. I, I was always. Yeah, I mean, look, I got my first PC in 1984, and it, it was clearly love at first click, right? Like, it was a, a means of expressing my creativity, and, and I knew whatever I was going to do in the future, it was going to involve technology. It wasn't clear that then that it would be socially impactful, nor was it clear that it was going to be financially interesting, but I, I knew I loved it. It was something I was going to be involved with. Now, in terms of, like, but I don't know. The, fundamentally, the I 
you know, why be studious, right? Like I, I, I just remembered loving learning. And and I remember like when I was five, I loved learning. I loved reading. And 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 it made me weird because uh I I, I you know, I would tell my parents if because you know, if you come from a prototypical family, and at that time we we're in France, uh, and what do people talk about at the dinner table? And they're like, uh, you know, whatever, soccer and the weather, and and yeah. and, and, I, and, and I remember being, I, and I was like an insufferable, arrogant kid of like, oh, you know, be dumb for me. I'm going to go eat in my room and read Tuckerville and study and study Adam Smith and Ricardo. You know, was like, and I would tell that to my cousins, my parents, and you know, like. Oh. I was not a nice kid from that perspective because I I, I wasn't very well rounded, but I had like mission, I had purpose. Like I'd I'd always had the sense of manifest destiny, and I cannot tell you where it came from. And maybe what was the most interesting is when all that failed, right? Like when my first startup finally failed, and where that sense of manifest destiny like essentially crumbled on itself, and all of a sudden I was like bankrupt and. And there, the mission became very different. And in a way, it's the, the mission that startup founders have today. It's like, you need to get a profitability. So when my second startup, you know, in 2001, 2002, you can raise a dollar of VC money. The only mission then was, so I actually even sacrificing the idea I built. I was like, I need to build, I want to be in tech. I want to be a tech entrepreneur. I'll build anything as long as it can succeed. And, and, and that's why I built what a business I didn't like. I built a ringtone company, not liking music, because I thought I could build it and I could make it profitable. And it took two and a half years and almost went bankrupt and got sued for hundreds of millions of dollars and all these you know, travails. But I had the most meaningful moment in my life then and probably since then has been the day we became profitable. We got the check from Sprint and we're like, wow, I can make payroll. I can pay rent. I can pay back my credit card that, you know, that, that was, it's not the day I sold the company and made tens of million. It was the day we became profitable because then we were masters of our own destiny. And frankly, later, by the time I sold the company, we were so busy growing. I mean, we went from a million of revenues to five to 50 to 200. And that crazy phase of 550, 200, even though that's when I sold and, I, I couldn't even. I didn't even appreciate it. Like I, I still lived in my studio apartment for years after that. You know, thing. What the day I sold and I made like forty million bucks. I, I bought myself uh, a tennis racket and a TV and an Xbox. <laughs> and, I, and I stayed in my. And, and I was too busy building the company anyway. <laughs> oh my goodness! This is outstanding. Is there anything else we may not have touched on that you you feel is important at this moment in time to to share with your audience, Fabrice? It's really a message of hope, right? Like if you follow the news, it, it feels like we things are bad and getting worse. And, and 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 it's pretty easy to get caught up in in, in whatever like the negative hype and, and that people have. And and two things. One is yes, there are fundamental issues, but we have an ability to address them. And because they're not being addressed by policy, it's our job to address them. And so Let's go build this better future, a better future, a world of equality of opportunity that is socially conscious, that's ecologically sustainable. It is within our means to do it. And it's up to us, entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and technologists to go and do it. So yeah, let's do it. Outstanding. Fabrice, it's been a real honor and pleasure. Exciting as well having you uh, on your show today. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you consider coming back uh, sometime in the very near future. Love to have you. I'd be delighted to. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Fabrice. 
You've been listening to the Entrepreneur's Radio Show and Podcast. Our guest today has been Fabrice Grinda. Fabrice is among the world's leading internet entrepreneurs and investors and has over 150 exits on now 600 angel investments. He's also served as CEO for three multinational companies and has, of course, an understatement, an impressive track record as an early investor in Alibaba, Flexport, Zoomit Pizza, Delivery Hero, Betterment, and Bright Roll. Fabrice is currently running the startup studio and venture fund FJ Labs, which he co-founded with business partner Jose Marie. For more information, feel free to visit FabriceGrinda.com. Again, FabriceGrinda.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another purpose-driven entrepreneur or high-performing game changer committed to ideas, positive outcomes, and a better world. I'm Tom Dioro. The Entrepreneur's radio show and podcast is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and on location. The chief audio engineer is Eris Chikopoulos. Chief engineer is Mark Lawrence, and we are all assisted by Peter Caroline and Omar L. Sabrao. And the executive producer and host of The Entrepreneur's Show is Tom Dior. If you wish to contact us, our email is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Thank you.